Welcome to the pulpit ministry of Christ Community Church in South Florida, aiming to make, mature, and multiply disciples by preaching and teaching God's Word based on the sufficiency of Scripture. And now, let's join Pastor Bernie Diaz for the message. We are in the middle of two kingdoms in conflict in our world like we have not seen in quite some time. It explains in large part of why our nation might be called today the divided states of America. Tony Evans said we're in a time of divine interruption. And I think that's true. God has been using COVID and racial, political unrest and tension And as our brother read the text and intimated, I think we are getting a wake-up call. I think the kingdom lines are being drawn. Citizenship rules are being drawn right now because you cannot belong to the kingdom of God by living in Christ and live in the kingdom of darkness at the same time. They are diametrically and even violently opposed to one another. I mean, the spiritual war that's going on for the hearts of men and women in this world, it's no less intense than the war that took place that I mentioned between the Axis powers and the Allies in that war. And it's no less than the battle for hearts and loyalties that took place 2,000 years ago in the Holy Land. You're going to find out in studying the Gospel of Mark, the followers of Jesus got into a lot of trouble because they pledged allegiance to someone other than Caesar. That was a problem. So our text is dealing with this issue. That was then, and then there is now as well a time for the kingdom. And so the question everyone needs to ask themselves is, which kingdom do you belong to and how do you know? Join me in a word of prayer that will involve the kingdom in a prayer that we often pray privately and corporately And we miss the part about the kingdom. Join me in prayer. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed or holy be your name. May your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And give us this day our daily bread, Lord, that you would forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. You'd lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And may we just add that yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty in Jesus' name. Amen. We are in the inauguration stage of the Lord Jesus Christ's ministry as Messiah, Son of God. And that's going to mean the launch of his kingdom. And the spirit-inspired writer of this gospel, John Mark, the Apostle Peter's right-hand man, at this time is giving us a kind of a Twitter-like feed of what's going on in the life and ministry of our Lord. That began, as you already heard, with his anointing from God the Father and the Spirit. We saw his baptisms, baptism at the hands of John the Baptist, and then was followed by 40 days of testing from God, and that temptation from Satan in the wilderness that proved his kingship to the enemy. He proved that he is worthy to rule and reign over this kingdom of God. And so what this text is about in just two verses is two things that we can take notice of. One is an announcement or a commencement, a proclamation made of some kingdom news, and then a call to you to reply to that news. How are you going to reply to it? And when I say commencement, it's because that means the beginning of something. 
and then there's a command, a call to react to the news of that something that has begun. So very simply, the kingdom has begun and there's a command for you and I to be a part of it. Let's look at the commencement part of this again. In verse 14, just into the beginning of verse 15. Now again, after John was arrested, meaning the Baptist, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Now we'll stop there. Because Matthew's account of this commencement, i got to tell you, gives us a little more geographic detail about this region of Galilee Jesus came into, okay, from Nazareth. And the gospel writers give us a different emphasis at the look at the ministry of Christ. You need to know this because the details differ from one to another. And chronologically, and I think Brother Robert hit on this, Mark leaves out a good chunk of historic information about a year and a half worth of what happened after the Lord's baptism and the temptation to what now is in this text. John's Gospel tells us that in a year and change, Jesus called his first disciples. He performed his first public miracle. Do you remember where that was? The wedding at Cana when he turned water into wine. He did his first cleansing in the temple in Jerusalem. He did that twice. He went there already the first time and did that. And then we have the message of the Lord on being born again that he gave to Nicodemus. That's already happened. And the encounter with the Samaritan woman at the well. That's all John 3 and 4. And all of this seems to happen before John the Baptist is taken prisoner. So the three synoptic writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, they report this event happening before Jesus launched his Galilean preaching ministry. John the Baptist gets arrested first. There's no contradiction, by the way. There's no error in any of that. Mark is not trying to be a chronological historian, okay? He's just giving us facts. And he's primarily writing to Gentiles, remember. They want it quick, and they want it now. The facts, just the facts, ma'am. So just know that the prophetic preparatory ministry of John the Baptist seems to be ending as the Lord's ministry of preaching and signs and wonders and miracles is beginning. There's the transition. John even said himself, I must decrease as he must increase. So what is this good news, this gospel stuff that the Lord is going to preach about? And I ask that because when we think of the gospel... We think of the things that happened on that weekend, holy weekend, that Paul lays out in 1 Corinthians 15. Christ makes atonement for sinners. He dies on the cross. He resurrects. Victory over sin and death. That's how we think of the gospel today, right? On our side of the cross. Gospel means good news. That's good news for us. But Mark is telling us the gospel ministry was launched before the Lord's death and resurrection. He's saying there's gospel good news already. So the commencement of Jesus' three-year ministry in his first coming, his first advent, is already called gospel. Look at the very first verse, the first sentence of this book. Chapter 1. In the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So the gospel begins way back before the cross. And many of these readers, listeners at the time, particularly those that didn't know or understand the Old Testament, they wouldn't even be thinking of a messianic sacrifice 
for sin at this point. Like a lot of Jews, what would a Gentile expect when you're talking about somebody coming on the scene and beginning something? Good news. What kind of good news would that be? I'll tell you what it would be. They would think a ruler, a king, some kind of political figure has just arrived. That would be big good news. Probably the Jews are feeling this way due to all the centuries of being oppressed foreign nations, as we heard in our BRP, by the Babylonians, Medo-Persians, Greece, now the Roman Empire, the Jews, especially the rabbinical tradition of religion, they are waiting for news of a Davidic-like king, a Messiah, who's going to come and just annihilate their enemies and restore the kingdom forever on earth. They would even refer to some Old Covenant scriptures, and they would say, hey, gospel news means our king is here. Our enemies are dead, and Israel is again the center of the earth. What they leave out, the scriptures also talk about a covenant that produces new hearts in people, a law of love, a Messiah that suffers and redeems his people. Did you know Job, in one of the oldest books in the Bible, knew about that way back when he said, when I die, I will see my Redeemer again when I live. He believed in the resurrection. The Sadducees, one and a half of the Sanhedrin, those high priests, they didn't even believe a resurrection existed. So they're not thinking along the same lines. But verse 14, going into 15, is saying, Now is the time for Jesus to preach at Galilee. The good news of the kingdom of heaven and God has begun. And in fact, in Matthew 4, the Lord announces it with Isaiah's prophecy fulfillment like he did at the synagogue in Nazareth. He gives a little hint, nudge, nudge, wink, wink. He says, the people dwelling in darkness, this is Jesus talking, the people in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region in the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Jesus is that light, right? Because he's going to call himself the light of the world. And Luke's account also goes to Jesus being rejected in the sermon, in the synagogue, in Nazareth, as he's fulfilling more of Isaiah's prophecies, Isaiah 58, Isaiah 61, he puts some things together. Listen to how it reads in the Gospel of Luke in the fourth chapter, 18th verse. I think we heard this recently. The Lord said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The Lord is saying, hey, this Messiah you've been waiting for all these years, he's right here, right now, right in front of you. All the prophecies, all the types, the shadows, the signs that were all pointing to me, well, here it is. This is the good news, gospel, that time is fulfilled. That literally in the Greek has the word of the idea of having something completed, finished. They would use it to describe a promise or a prophecy that came to pass. Paul, in Galatians 4.4, 4, it was one of our memory verses not too long ago, put it this way. When the fullness of time had come, same idea, God sent forth his son, born of women, born under the law. Okay? So he's saying, in essence, I'm here now, so is my kingdom. It's present. That's what it means when he said the kingdom of God is at hand. The king is on the scene. What's interesting is the people couldn't understand it as good news. They didn't make 
the connection. They couldn't connect the dots. And the Lord even knows that. And he tells them, just like Elisha and Elijah, that his message as a prophet would be largely rejected and even cursed by the people. But nonetheless, the good news is, Messiah's arrived, he's ready to go by the power of the Spirit, which is an application for us to be prayed up and filled with the Spirit for whatever we're going to do significantly to bring any glory to God. And it's time for the Lord to do His business, His way, which is preaching, teaching, and healing, essentially. So this is kingdom time. Now, what kind of kingdom are we talking about? We're going to go to school for a second with the doctrine of the kingdom. Because that can be confusing to a lot of people, understandably, what it means, where are we in the kingdom, at what point. I want to help you with that briefly, because this is going to help you understand who you belong to and where you fit in. Kingdom of God, what are we talking about? Matthew, in the parallel passage, calls it the kingdom of heaven, but it's parallel, it's synonymous. Kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, same thing. The emphasis here is not necessarily on a geographical kingdom. It doesn't have to be. The emphasis is on the authority of a king to rule and reign over his citizens. This is part of the Lord's threefold office as the Messiah. He is a prophet, he is a priest, and he is a what? A king. This is a kingdom, people, you want to be a part of. The Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 14, the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Who doesn't want that? Now, what does it mean that the kingdom has come? Here's what's tricky. It's here now and not yet. It's here now and not yet. It's on earth. We want it to be on earth as it is in heaven. What does that mean? I'm going to give you three dimensions of the kingdom you'll want to take note of. Three dimensions, three stages of the kingdom of God. The first one is spiritual. It's invisible. The kingdom is here right now in the hearts of believers only. In the present church age between the first and second comings of Christ. And this is where we're in this middle conflict between good and evil, kingdoms and conflict. But right now, our king, he's saving, he's ruling over Jews and Gentiles, he's building his church at the same time Satan is trying to keep the lost in his kingdom. And the presence, this is the key, the presence of the kingdom of God in this world right now is veiled. It cannot be seen completely because our king physically is at the right hand of the Father in heaven. So the kingdom is only as visible as you and I make it to people. It's invisible right now. He even told the Pharisees, Jesus did, that the kingdom was not tangible or observable, but it was within them, meaning true disciples. He said that in Luke 17. And you know that because we have churches in which unbelievers are attenders and even members in worship with born-again believers. There may be goats with sheep in the room as we speak. Or certainly watching from home. It can be hard sometimes to tell who's who. 
Jesus, though, is going to return and literally weed out the church. And even still, the kingdom is pretty big, this invisible kingdom, because the Lord said in the parable of the mustard seed, which is the smallest of all, agriculturally at that time, the smallest of seeds in the ground would just blow up big time and grow with these big branches referring to the church. So it's spiritual and invisible. The second dimension of the kingdom is that it's physical. It will be physical. It will be visible. And it will be millennial. Historically. On earth for a thousand years. It's going to be an earthly kingdom. It's coming soon, we hope. That was prophesied in Daniel. Believers and unbelievers will live in that kingdom. It's going to come after the time of tribulation. When the Son of Man comes to judge the world, He's going to punish Israel's enemies. He's going to redeem the remnant of that nation. He's going to restore it, and He's going to reign for a thousand years over it. In fact, if you turn to the Olivet Discourse in Mark's accounting, Mark chapter 13, just to give you a, a little hint of how the Lord put it after the tribulation time, He said, and when then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. That's what we're looking forward to. That's the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, the kingdom of God on earth. All right? That's what's coming up. Third dimension the second just flows right into the third at the end times in what we call the eternal kingdom. That's visible and it's heavenly. Visible and heavenly. It's only for believers. All the believers of all of redemptive history live together forever in the presence of God and Jesus Christ. Amen? It's what we call the new heavens and the new earth, the Jews back in the day referred to it as the vision of the New Jerusalem or Zion. And the obvious question, the obvious answer that you want to know that follows this kingdom commencement is how do I get in this kingdom? What do I have to do? Where's my passport? Where's my citizenship card? Do I need a COVID vaccination? Maybe a test. To get in. No. So we're going to move from the consummation now to the command here. Look at the middle of verse 15 of our text. He's saying, Jesus, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's the response. That's to be the reply to the good gospel that the kingdom is here. We've talked about this before, you think? Repent and believe. We have to go back to it, though, because it's life and death. God has always said in his word, choose life, right? Remember, John the Baptist's preaching of repentance was different in that it was preparation for this gospel. We saw that in verse 4 in this chapter. He doesn't mention our King Jesus by name, but he's telling people, have a change of heart. Have a change of mind about your sin. Confess your sin and want to turn from them, and then the baptism is a symbol, a cleansing, a washing, that symbolizes what's going to happen later in the heart. And the Jews knew what it meant to repent, because they thought of it as turning back to God. We get that. But now in the new covenant, the Lord in this command, He's going to tie something together for both Jew and Gentile, that God commands them to do, to turn and trust. Repent and believe. Remember Acts 17? Acts 17. 
Paul wrote, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. And in our text, Jesus is preaching this gospel message, folks, as a command. I, I think that's fascinating. Jesus doesn't suggest that you repent and come into the kingdom. It's, it's, not, it's not an option in the sense of what he desires. He's commanding everyone to repent to him. It's amazing. In Acts 20, just three chapters later from what I quoted, Paul testifies that we are to have repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So remember we've told you those are the two sides of the salvation coin. Don't try to break the coin in half. You can't do that. Don't try to split it apart. Repentance and faith are together. They're connected. You can't have one without the other in terms of salvation. To repent is what again? It's to make a hard commitment to turn from something or someone to something or someone. In this case, what are you doing if you've repented and you're in the kingdom? You are no longer trusting in yourself, your ways, your life, your flesh, your wants and desires and as, as a means of getting what you want and having a place in future paradise. You are giving up on that the trusting in Jesus as the only way, the only truth, the only life worth following after. The only one worth living. Reminds me of a Christian school teacher once who was uh, asked a class what the word repentance means. Little boy put up his hand and said, it's being sorry for your sins. And then a little girl raised her hand and said, it's being sorry enough to quit. That's it. That's repentance. Full bore. What you're doing in repentance is you're taking the crown of life off of your head. That's what the word repentance is implying here. You realize you're not the king of your life anymore. And you're willing to put the crown on the head of the only one that can be and should be your king, Jesus Christ. You are submitting in repentance and faith to the lordship of Christ as king over your life. He calls the shots you don't. The days of you being boss of your life, if you want to be a Christian, are over. If you have repented and come into the kingdom. That's the gospel. That's good news. Believing with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength that Jesus is the Messiah and Son of God, and he is the greatest, most beautiful treasure you could ever imagine. And this is so important, folks. Because the gospel has been so misinterpreted, so manipulated, and so confused by a culture and a society, including mainstream Christianity, that has so watered it down, they've made grace cheap and easy beliefism the gospel of today. You know why? Because people can't stand to have a king over them in their hearts of hearts. We know the prosperity gospel is false, as an example. It's name it and claim it, idea of redemption, right? You claim a verse for yourself, a promise, and you dream it, envision it. The promises are there for you, and they'll make you healthy, wealthy, and happy. As you're going to follow the Lord, following his footsteps in the gospel of Mark, you're going to see that is way off. Then there's the social gospel. That says politics, public policy, things like social justice or government 
is the way to transform lives or to introduce people to Jesus. If we just get the right president, everything will be better. Everything will be great. Nothing can be further from the truth than that idea. They'll say that about Jesus. He was a social gospel guy. He was a good teacher after all. He spent so much time with sinners and drunks and prostitutes. and So that must be the way change society. That's not the gospel. Then the neo-evangelical movement of seeker-sensitive pulpits has been watering down the consequences of unbelief or rejecting the gospel because it sounds too harsh. It's too offensive. You're standing up here talking about things like hell and judgment and condemnation. Who wants to hear that? I get it. If you're unredeemed, nobody wants to hear that. Makes sense. But if God's doing something in your heart and you want to repent, it's exactly what you need to hear. It can't be avoided. The gospel is offensive by nature. Not too many people want to hear it because it demands, again, a change of heart, loyalty, citizenship. You have to go from one kingdom to another. What is the word for that we call? Repentance. There are people that need to hear this. They need to hear that sinners, like themselves, need and want God's mercy to forgive their sins. They cry out for it like the tax collector in Luke 18. Remember what Jesus said? He said, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. What does he mean? He's talking to people that were self-righteous. They're not going to hear this call of repentance. They're self-righteous. They think they've got it all figured out. They're on their way to the kingdom. They're not going to hear it. Sinners who know they're sinners will get the call. They'll get it. And they'll repent and believe as God has worked in their heart. It's like the same schoolgirl. I like, you know, I just told you about repentance. She was saved, and when someone asked her, where were you before? She said, ah, I was a sinner. Then she was asked, what are you now? She said, I'm a sinner. And they said, what's the difference? She said, I was a sinner before running after sin. Now I'm a sinner running from sin. There are consequences, folks. I have to tell you, it's my job for disobeying the commands of God because Jesus has just told you in his word he commands you to repent. So what is the consequence? What is the implication if you do not? Well, there's always consequences to disobeying God. I'll give you the one from 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Not a favorite verse of many places today. In the middle of verse 7 through 9, Paul writes, whoever believes... That's actually John 3, but it says in 2 Thessalonians 1, 7. Let me start there. The Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven, will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who what? Do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Is there any ambiguity? Is there any doubt in what Paul, on behalf of God, is saying there? There is only eternal torment and hell for those that disobey the command of God to repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Could not be more clear. 
other than Jesus' own words in John 3.36. He said, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but what? The wrath of God remains on him. Also, if you turn over from our text in Mark to the ninth chapter of Mark, you're going to see how the Lord talks about it, about what lies ahead for those that don't deal with their sins and don't trust in him and his gospel. He uses the analogy of body parts. I think you've heard this before. Mark 9, verse 45, he says, If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off, for it is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. He's talking about repentance of sin, whatever your sin thing is. It is better for you to enter the kingdom, what? The kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. You do whatever you have to do to repent. And now that's what's behind this metaphor of cutting off your body parts, gouging out your eye. You do what you have to do to repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Maybe that text, maybe Revelation 20, and talking about the lake of fire is uh, what led Charles Spurgeon to preach his very unpopular but truthful phrase, you either turn or burn. Now, I'm not saying, by the way, you need to use that phrase precisely when you present the gospel. But you do have to understand what that means and convey it somehow when the opportunity presents itself, right? And, and, and why am I suggesting this? Because the Lord has commanded it. Remember, we're in the spiritual and invisible age of the kingdom of God. And while Christ reigns from heaven, we on earth, I'm talking to Christians now, professing Christians, we are told to examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith, if we're in the kingdom. And that starts with examining that threefold test we've talked about from our days in 1 John. You look at your faith, your understanding of faith, you look at your fruit, and you look at your fortitude, your ability to persevere, endure in the faith. That's a good start. You don't look to see if you're in the kingdom. If you want to check your citizenship card, you don't necessarily look at your family heritage. I was born in a Christian family. That doesn't mean anything. You don't look at your church attendance, giving, even your outward behavior. Remember the Pharisees were the most religiously outward righteous people of their time, and they were all on the fast track to hell. So, some of those things may be helpful in having you pass a fruit inspection, but the idea is what's in your heart. Why do you do what you do? What drives you? What motivates you? So, I mean, I'm talking to the people in this building, and I'm talking to those that are watching, listening online. Who do you love? Who are you trying to please? Who do you want to obey? Who do you want to obey? Jesus said, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. So there are times, I have to tell you, there are times that a fear of final judgment can motivate someone to true repentance. And you've got to keep that in mind if you want to share the gospel of the kingdom of God. People talk about revival today. We need revival in America. We need another great awakening. That's only going to happen, 
Let me be very clear. That will not be a political movement. There have been two great awakenings in this country. Politics had absolutely nothing to do with them. Revival comes as the result of people, many people in a nation being broken by sin. They repent and they believe in Jesus Christ. And it's a grassroots movement, one person to another, one community to another. That's what America needs. America needs a kingdom of God that is expanding because God's people are walking and talking, showing and sharing Jesus Christ. And more people are coming to faith, more people are coming into the kingdom, and that grace and sanctification will spill over, perhaps, through much of the nation. So that's what we are to do. We have to play doctor. Remember that old kid's game? You got to play doctor. You got to tell your family members, friends, neighbors, I'm here to tell you you're dying from a terminal disease with a 100% fatality rate. The disease is called sin. And if you get that much to them across, they're in a position to get the cure. The vaccination to that disease is the gospel of God in Jesus Christ. Right? So as I close, we're in a position today to deal with, as I've talked about before, the four roads to God. There's really only one road to God, but people like to have more than one road, more than one way to get into heaven, to get into paradise, right? If I just do this, do that, this religion, that religion, syncretistically I'll put them together, all of that. No, no. You can know Christ. You can come into the kingdom starting with creation your conscience, the person of Christ, and then communication, which is this book. But ultimately, all roads intersect. We're talking intersectionality now. You know where the real intersectionality is? Jesus Christ. You have to deal with Jesus. You have to come to grips with Jesus and his kingdom, the only one that affords true peace, joy, righteousness and forgiveness so yes once again it's time for the kingdom that's the message it's here he commands us all to repent and believe and if you have repented and believed and you have faith and fruit that shows that then you need to communicate this gospel to everyone you know the time is now let today be the day of salvation for someone that you know and love amen Let's pray together. Lord, the time is now. The kingdom time is now for you to do the work only the Holy Spirit can do, but using us as the vehicles of grace, a means of grace that you have called us to do. Christians are commanded to make disciples, to tell people that if they confess Jesus as Lord, and believe he has been raised from the dead, that they would be saved. We need to do that. And for someone in this room, someone watching, Lord, I pray they're doing that right now. The Holy Spirit has brought conviction in their conscience, has broken their heart. They understand that dual citizenship doesn't work. We cannot have a foot in the church and a foot in the world. We cannot follow Satan and Christ at the same time. A decision must be made. A choice must be made. What kingdom 
do you want to be in? The only kingdom of peace, joy, faithfulness, righteousness, and joy, true joy, that endures is the kingdom of Jesus Christ. I call on people today to do what Jesus has commanded them to do, to repent and believe in Jesus Christ, to turn away from sin, their selfishness, to turn to God, to trust in Jesus alone as the one who died to forgive them of their sins, to give them abundant joy, peace, life, and then eternal life in paradise forevermore. That's what everybody deep down wants. May they travel on the road that goes to and stops at the person of Jesus Christ. We pray, and all God's people said, Amen. Christ Community Church is a God-glorifying, Christ-exalting, and Bible-centered body of believers who love God and love people by making disciples of Jesus Christ. For more information on us and to learn how to give towards our media ministry, please go to our website at www.christcomchurch.org. That's christcomchurch.org. And look for the Giving tab at the top of the homepage.